Okay, welcome back everyone. So the first speaker for the afternoon session is uh, Alex. Alex is from uh, Kenya, Nairobi, and I think you know him already by now. <laughs> yeah. uh, thanks, Kandala. Um, I struggled quite a bit trying to put this presentation together. One is, do I just share around what we've been doing on youth and children? Uh, do I just take a more um, global perspective and then draw on lessons from some of our work to highlight uh, a number of issues that impact on youth, uh, on youth and children, especially uh, with respect to health. I took the letter uh, perspective, which in, in, in essence, I think some of the issues that might be raised here, some of you will, be more, um, will have greater expertise in those areas, so I would defer to you. But uh, basically what we're trying to look at is how can we get youth and child health issues prioritized in development agenda um, for the many parts of the, um, of the developing world? I think this comes from the National Research uh, Council report in 2005 that indicates that the success of achieving the MDGs will really depend on how much emphasis and focus we give to children. This is because our children currently uh, under 25 account for close to half of the world population, and 90% of them live in the developing world. And if you only put those two statistics together, it already tells you quite a lot about their vulnerability and the challenges and, uh, um, that they face. The basic thing about children is that a lot of the um, issues that affect their health and social development are things that can be prevented. They are largely preventable. So there are things that would have very strong policy implications and where programs can make a, a big difference. Over the next um, 20, what, 15 years, almost all the growth in the youth population will happen in Africa. Africa will, in, the youth population under 25 will increase by about 120 million. But globally, you will have about 78 uh, million people. And this will be driven by declines in places like Europe, where the youth population will decline by about 30 million people, uh, which is half the population of, of the UK. So Africa will drive quite a lot of the growth we are going to see over the next 15 years in the proportion of children um, under 25. There was a recent Lancet article, I think it was in September last year, by Patton and colleagues um, that really uh, pulled together quite a lot of the profiles of youth and children and the changing patterns of health and, and, and well-being of children. But I want to say that why it is important to understand these uh, issues is, uh, I, I think, the quote at the end there, that the health and social needs of vulnerable and disenfranchised uh, young people serve as an early warning system of threats that will ultimately engulf larger populations. So if we don't understand what's going on here, if you can't deal with it, then these problems will ultimately affect the whole of our society. So in this particular article uh, last year in The Lancet, it showed that there were about 2.6 million deaths among children under uh, 25 uh, uh, annually. And in this particular, in fact, report, it's, it's clear that the mortality rates among adolescents, uh, which would be uh, actually uh, 12 to 19, 
is much higher now than in childhood in many parts of the world. And yet all our emphasis, even if you look at the MDGs and stuff like that, are still on infants and children uh, for very good reasons in some instances. Females, female deaths um, are lower than male deaths in all the regions of the world except Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. And in these two areas, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, the issues of maternal deaths, particularly in the age group um, uh, 15 to 19, uh, uh, drives the mortality of females, uh, uh, um, uh, much makes it much higher than any other. In fact, in, in, in that particular report, they had to increase the scale for Africa by almost a tenfold in order to uh, graph the, 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 the death rates for children, uh, for younger adolescents. And for older adolescents, the issue of HIV AIDS becomes very important. And within these regions, I think, uh, overall, the highest mortality rates are in the developing, in the least developed countries, and the relative risk of dying is in uh, highest in Africa. Again, this particular report drives, uh, draws on a number of implications of this, uh, and the causes and uh, factors that drive the high rates of death among adolescents. I want to focus this presentation on six basic processes that I see as uh, ongoing trends that impact heavily on the health of children and youth, uh, um, especially in the developing world. And I will use some examples from our ongoing research at the African Population and Health Research uh, Center to explain uh, some of these uh, factors and how they impact on child and adolescent health. With globalization, I think it is very clear that uh, there are that children currently are growing up within a context that is characterized by rapid uh, 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 changes in a number of areas due to globalization, and this has uh, led to huge advances in technology and global markets and created a lot of opportunities for children and for adolescents. And these opportunities have actually been very positive in so many instances, but there are also negative consequences. And some of these negative consequences, I believe we were, uh, two days ago, we were having dinner with uh, Gillian, and she was talking about her work in Malindi, uh, particularly around drugs. And this is something that has become a global problem for young people in many parts of the world. Whether you're in Nairobi or you're in New York, <coughs> the issue of drugs is a major challenge because of increased opportunities for transportation and movement and stuff like that. It's become a global problem. There is also the issue of um, a breakdown of social structures and community cohesion that really drive quite a bit of, uh, that affect a lot of children and they are growing up and stuff like that. And the issues of inequalities, I think that has become very visible. Uh, if you take a place like Nairobi, whether you live in Kibera or you live in Laventin, there's very huge inequities that exist and very visible these days. And it is known, not just within cities, but across cities and across countries. Um, if you leave that and you look at the issue of urbanization and how it's actually affecting the health and well-being of children and adolescents, we realize that currently half of the global population live in urban areas. And in some parts of the developed world, if you look at Europe, North America, and Latin America, it's close to 75-80% that live in urban areas. The estimates in Africa and Southeast Asia is that in the next 10-15 uh, years, 20 years, half of the population will be living in urban areas. However, um, what we have also noticed is that with urbanization comes quite a lot of other challenges. These are some of the trends from uh, UN projections about that by the year 2050, I think 
in every part of the world uh, would have crossed that threshold of largely urban population. Given uh, some estimates will put Africa by 2020, others by 2030, but definitely by 2050, almost two-thirds of African population will live in urban areas. One of the biggest challenges of urbanization is the fact that that has occurred within the context of um, limited economic growth in many parts of Africa. This UN Habitat report in 2003 showed that in some cities or in some countries in Africa, close to 90% 90, 90 or more of the population actually live in slum-like conditions. In the region as a whole, uh, if you look at us, um, Sub-Saharan Africa is about 72% of the urban population live in slums. So if majority of the population will live in urban areas, a majority of the urban population will live in slums. Understanding what happens to youth and children in the slum context becomes very important if we are going to actually make meaningful impacts and changes in uh, uh, changing national indicators. So this is one of the biggest challenges that will drive and affect the well-being of youth in general. The issue of urbanization, I think, uh, with, with all these characters, I think if you look at some of the major characteristics of slums, uh, the issue of the housing conditions, the um, high levels of unemployment, violence, and limited opportunities for education, the challenges they pose then will increasingly and inherit, uh, uh, inevitably affect what happens overall uh, uh, to, to the youth population. If you look at the issue of sexual activity, for instance, this study we did in Nairobi in 2000, and, uh, compared to the DHS, the uh, Kenya Demographic and Health Surveys, in uh, 2003, showed that on average, the children in Nairobi, on average, in the green uh, bar, uh, the median age at first sex is 17, but in the slums, it is 14. That difference of three years can, make, the, can, can uh, make a huge difference with respect to whether or not these children go to secondary school or not. And we know that age at initiation of sex with uh, also uh, affecting childbearing and other uh, reproductive health indicators can uh, be uh, hugely important in terms of health outcomes of young people. So by looking at this, you look at uh, those in the slums in red about uh, by age 14, half of them have already become sexually active compared to uh, like 17 in, the other, um, in, in Nairobi as a whole. You look at issues of, uh, again, we did this study uh, in, in, in 2000, which looked at just a representative, a representative sample of slum households. And we look at an issue like the proportion of uh, children with diarrhea. In the last bar, there is about 31%, almost one in three children under um, five years of age would have had an incident of diarrhea in the two weeks uh, uh, before the survey. If you look at it by wealth, one of the things you see is that actually you have some gradient there with almost 43% uh, of children in the poorest households having had diarrhea compared to 25% of children in the richest 25, uh, uh, 20% of the households in the slums. If you look at uh, Nairobi as a whole from the demographic and health surveys, you also see the same gradient from 12% to 19%. So this is in rural areas of Kenya. You look at the richest, uh, it's about 12%. You look at the poorest, it is 19%. But what is really very surprising here is that if you look at the slums and, the uh, and, and rural areas, if you compare the proportion of the poorest in rural areas who had diarrhea at 19%, it's even lower 
than the proportion of children in the slums, in the richest households in the slums who had diarrhea at 25%. So what happens within the slum environment will increasingly affect the indicate whether or not countries will achieve the MDGs and any of the health indicators we are looking at because of the unique vulnerability of children and youth within that particular context. You can look at that in any other health indicators. You look at under five mortality in the slums, it's almost 91 to, uh, compared to 67 for Nairobi as a whole. And you look at uh, under five mortality, it's 151 deaths uh, before age five. Uh, for every 1,000 live births compared to 95 in Nairobi or 115 in rural, uh, 117 in rural areas of Kenya. So compared to any other subgroup, we see that children and young people in the slum context are actually having much poorer outcomes, uh, health outcomes. And this increased vulnerability is something that we need to be able to understand to be able to address some of the major challenges they face. I think the issue of HIV AIDS is something that uh, the, uh, the, the film that we watched earlier uh, brings home about the vulnerability of young people and, uh, and children to HIV. And um, there was in a, a report uh, from UNAIDS that shows in 2007, almost 90% of new HIV infections were in low and middle income countries. And nearly half of these, 45%, uh, among uh, adolescents, 15, um, young people 15 to 24 years old. Again, these adolescents will account for less than 30% of the population, but they account for 45% of new infections. We know that from the literature that we, uh, female adolescents are at much higher risk of HIV infection than the men, and HIV pandemic has been heightened uh, due to limited, uh, some of the, I, I think this helps us uh, makes the case for us to understand some of the main drivers of HIV infection among young people. Some of the studies that we've uh, looked at, and some of them from our center and, and, and other areas show that there are, despite wise, widespread uh, knowledge about HIV, it is important among young people, many of them still have very poor knowledge of, of, uh, of modes of infection and stuff like that about HIV. And they are unable to assess their own risk. Half of the men who uh, have fathered a child and never been tested, felt the reason for them for not get going for a test is because they don't feel they are at risk. So again, assessment of personal risk of HIV infection among young people is something that we, uh, needs further attention. And we also see that in many of the people who even go for, uh, to get the tested, they, they often the, the testing programs often do not follow national guidelines, like you need to give counseling, and some of the people that come for uh, testing often do not get counseled. Again, in, in terms of the gender disparity between men and women among 15 to 24-year-olds, you see, in many countries in Africa, women are almost five times as likely to be infect, uh, HIV positive as men, and this is from UNAIDS. Uh, in this particular study we are doing in the slums of Nairobi, and one of the things we are showing there is that um, if you look at uh, the percent of respondents in this particular study, which is uh, 15, uh, 12 to 19 year olds in the slums who have ever been tested uh, by pregnancy status, those who have never been pregnant or made anyone pregnant for men and women is about 20%. And if they have been pregnant or made somebody pregnant for women, it goes to 90% more due to the PMTCT programs. And for men, it's 49% 
But overall, I think if we can increase those opportunities for people who are not already uh, pregnant or have given somebody, I think we can uh, actually improve uh, uh, awareness of own status and which we know uh, uh, is strongly related to behavior change. Another major process that's really driving uh, youth um, health conditions is the issue of education. And here really the key point is the opportunities that education provides. But more than that is the fact that those opportunities are actually not very uniform across the board. There are uh, big differences between rural areas and urban areas, big differences between wealth, uh, uh, socioeconomic groups and stuff like that. But critical to this is the fact that even when you think about the quality of education that people are getting, it's also very different. And these are one of the major mechanisms that can lift children and adolescents out of poverty and provide them uh, much better opportunities. And from the work we've done in Nairobi, and uh, well, one of the things we see that Sub-Saharan Africa is lagging behind when you look at literacy rates and other access to education in many instances. But again, as I indicated earlier, the key thing about inequities in access to education is one thing that will, uh, uh, that is increasingly becoming very uh, important in terms of adolescent health outcomes. In this particular, um, in the study we're doing in, in Nairobi, uh, if you look at both males and females, we did a study uh, which is one year apart, looking at those who are in school and out of school. And one of the things we see is that if you look at um, children who have never had sex before in, in wave one of this study, by the time we went back one year later, for those who are not in school, about a third of them have actually uh, uh, had sex compared to only 20% of those who are in school. So the risk of transition to first sex is almost a third lower for those who are in school. And when you have a situation where many people are not able to access education, then there are at this very high risk or increased risk of, um, of, HI, of, uh, of transition to first sex. But when you think of education, I think one of the challenges we face is that many countries in Africa has introduced free primary education policy, like in Kenya. Some of the studies we've done in Kenya suggest that if you look at the slums, in clo close to 60% of the children living in slums actually go to non-public schools where they have to pay fees and where the quality of education uh, is much lower than, uh, uh, than in the public schools. I, I'll clarify that a bit. So if you look at this, these are two schools in Korogocho, uh, which is in Nairobi. And the question is, why would a parent send their child to this school in the same community rather than to that school? We've been doing this study for the last five years. And um, one of the things we see is that between in this particular community, for instance, and in many other slums, it is the children of the poorest 20-40% in the population in the, in the community that will actually go to this school, whereas the, richest, uh, the children of the richest uh, uh, households will go to the school in the right. The Assistant Minister of Education, when we shared this report um, in November 2008, said the reason is very simple. The cost of getting your child into the public school is more than what you pay. Uh, as what you pay as bribe in bribes to get your child into that school will be more than what you pay as fees to get your child into this school. But in the non-slum non communities, what's really going on is that 
It is the rich who send their children to public, uh, to private schools because they feel with free primary education, the quality of schooling overall in the public schools has gone down. So in the non-slum non communities, it is the poorest who send their children to public schools. In the slums, because of the huge demand, you have one or two schools for about 7,000 children, and they can't get in there. So these schools thrive. And the challenge now is that when you have this type of policy, where the poor are accessing very poor quality education, and increasingly, this is constituting a majority of the youth within this particular context. Uh, it creates a problem in terms of their preparation for the labor force and other things. And one of the things we've done now is work with the government uh, Ministry of Education to see how can you redefine what a school is. Instead of looking at the, foot, the size of the football field and the number of teachers and stuff like that, you can actually look at the number of children that are studying within this context and see under the free primary education policy, can you be able to provide some support to those uh, uh, schools. And that's something they are trying to do now to redefine schools within this context. But this poor quality access to schools is something that is going to drive uh, uh, the, bene the, the, uh, the ability of young people within this particular context to reap the benefits of education. Um, marriage is another major area of transition and trends that can affect youth health and well-being. And here, one of the major things is that uh, I think for Africa, as well as in many other parts of the world, young people are marrying letter and letter. Even though that the age at first sex is not changing that much, but age at first marriage is increasing. Despite that, in sub-Saharan Africa, close to 40% of women actually marry before age 18. And in places like Niger or Chad, it's actually close to 70%. And in some parts of northern Nigeria, in some states in northern Nigeria, more than 70% uh, 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 get married before age 18. And median age at first marriage in these countries is still around 14, 15 years of age. And this has huge implications in terms of uh, a number of health outcomes for young people. There are a number of reasons why uh, uh, age at first marriage has been going up and why teenage um, marriages have been going down, uh, uh, going down in a number of these countries. But what is really important for us to look at is what's the implication of marriage? If you look at some of the reasons why people marry early or justifications for early marriage, often it is because people want to say that you know, marriage is protective of young people. They don't want them to get HIV. They don't want them to get uh, sexually active before marriage and stuff like that. So generally, people treat marriage as a risk factor. Uh, um, sorry, uh, premarital sex as a risk factor. And therefore, in a number of the contexts where age at first marriage is very low, it's really because they want to protect the girls. But there's been a number of studies that really show that young girls who get married early are actually at much higher risk of HIV infection than their sexually active unmarried counterparts. Uh, the study by Glenn shows that the uh, HIV prevalence among married young is um, about 10 percentage point higher in Kisumu and, uh, and in Zambia compared to their unmarried adolescents. And so it, it begins to raise questions. Is marriage really truly protective of young people? And what is it about marriage that puts young people at risk? How much is this due to the inability to negotiate safer sex? Uh, how much is it related to the age difference between them and their 
husbands, when people marry at 12, 13, 14, 15, and stuff like that. And how can we understand the true effect and impact of marriage in terms of uh, uh, the well-being of young people and, 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 and young adults? So these are areas of research we believe deserves, deserves further attention. You know, uh, it, um, it's quite inconsistent to be able to see that uh, uh, married young people are at much higher risk of both STIs and HIV infection than their unmarried sexually active uh, age mates. Uh, with respect to labor force participation, I think uh, this World Bank report uh, released last year suggests that the energy, skills, and aspirations of young people are invaluable assets that no country can afford to squander. And helping them to realize their full potential by gaining access to employment is a precondition for poverty eradication, sustainable development, and lasting peace. However, we also know that in terms of that, that young people are some of, uh, at the highest risk of being unemployed. If you look at uh, a number of, uh, of countries, this is really uh, the, the challenge they face. And in a place like Sub-Saharan Africa, 60% of the unemployed are young people. So what are the implications of this? But at the same time, we also know that there are a number of young people who enter into the, uh, and children who work and instead of going to school. And this also creates quite a bit of, of challenge. And there are a uh, need for research to really clarify what are the optimal, t in, for children who, for people who get into labor force much earlier in their, in their life, what are the longer, longer term implications of that in terms of missed education opportunities and, and, um, and, uh, and other implications it might have for them, but, uh, uh, in terms of their health and all that. So there are a lot of issues around here because of certain levels of poverty within the household and need to contribute to household well-being. Many young people are forced to work. But at the same time, this is denying, denying them opportunities to, re, uh, to, to remain in school. So trying to understand that and balance it becomes quite a, uh, some area where we need further, further research. So in conclusion, uh, some of the things that we've seen and from uh, the work we've done uh, is that increasingly young people are growing up with in, in contexts that are rapidly changing, whether you think about globalization, urbanization, and stuff like that. But in, if we are going to improve their health, then uh, at one level, these changes have created opportunities for them to be able to uh, uh, improve life expectancy, for instance, and be able to live and survive to old age. And there is widespread educational opportunities for many of the young people, and this has also created opportunities uh, uh, for them. In terms of technological advances and all that, I think these are all good and positive things for young people. But beyond all that, there are also implications that derive from all of this. So while many of these changes are beneficial, they also expose young people to very uh, many different uh, challenges that, uh, uh, that create risks and threats for their well-being. So in Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, I think we've talked about the issue of growing up within this particular context that's characterized by HIV, AIDS, rapid urbanization, and uh, limited economic opportunities. So because of this, there are increasing opportunities for, uh, increasing challenges for young people to stay in school, to remain in school, and to be able to achieve some of the wider benefits of education. <laughs> the complex health and social needs of young people are often ignored within the health and development agenda. And we think that if we are going to make a difference in the lives of these young people and in achieving most of the MDGs, it is very important that we pay attention to what's going on in the lives of these people. And if we don't address these opportunities, I think we will lose quite a huge uh, uh, um, 
opportunity for us to meet some of the MDGs uh, uh, that we care about. Thank you.